it's knowing who we are or who, who we have uh, on our panel um, today. So I'm excited to hear from them. And I do hope that uh, you will find this conversation about Kapwa, about uh, social justice, uh, about psychology and spirituality, uh, engaging and enlightening. So uh, my name is BJ Gonsalvo. I'll be your moderator and I'm very thankful for this, for this invitation from the Ateneans for social justice. I'm not an Atenean. Uh, I went to college here in Seattle, uh, but having grown up in the Philippines I, and, and knowing about Ateneo and now knowing about the, uh, this group, the Ateneans for Social Justice and what they do, um, you know, Donna, Jojo, uh, Den Denise, who was the one who introduced me to the group, Melanie and others whom I just met not too long ago and got to work with them on um, other, another discussion and other social justice topic. I feel honored to be invited to, uh, to this as a guest moderator. So um, thank you. So um, <clears throat> the way it'll go is this evening or, or today is we'll hear from, from the panelists. We'll have uh, participants' microphones on mute, but feel free to uh, type in your questions or your comments. Uh, I see that it's very busy now. Uh, we'll tr we'll the, the team will try to monitor it and um, field your questions that way. And also, if we get disconnected, uh, we'll send a notice to the email you provided. Um, we've got a jam-packed hour, hour and a half. So let's get to it. And I think we're still waiting for one speaker, right? Um, hopefully, she'll make it on time. Uh, but just a little background on uh, what brought us here and why we're talking about this topic of Kapwa. Earlier in June uh, this year, I think, I think some of you might have been there on that, this, on that call or on, this, uh, on the Zoom call, we talked about deconstructing prejudice, confronting bias, and rebuilding Kapwa. And there was a great deal of interest in um, having a follow-up discussion on uh, having a follow-up conversation on Kapwa. And so here we are, we've invited um, two Filipino-American psychologists to talk about Kapwa. They're also Ateneans and, and are now living on the East Coast, one in Florida and then um, one in New York. So we've got both sides of uh, this, the U.S. here. And then we've got the, uh, a Jesuit priest, freshly minted doctor of ministry, uh, who I met here in Seattle when he was studying for his doctorate. Uh, but it's now in Cagayan de Oro, so uh, newly arrived there. So we've got an exciting lineup here. So let me also take this time to kind of <clears throat> uh, define Kapwa. I think we have a diverse audience, so um, let's uh, just quickly uh, define Kapwa here. So, Kapwa is one of those words that is deeply embedded in our culture. You know, it's got a long, uh, it deeply embedded in our language and our history that its meaning and its translation sometimes get lost in the shuffle. So Kapwa in its essence is, is basically, um, um, you know, in a lot of the casual translation is, is basically neighbor or, or brother or sister or fellow human being. In its original form, it comes from Kapwa, which means someone we share space with. Uh, Puang means space. And, and so in essence, Kapwa is, as uh, Virgilio Enriquez, the Filipino, uh, the father of Filipino psychology, 
defined it as our shared inner selves, our shared humanity, our shared um, uh, human, yeah, our shared humanity, and, and you know, seeing the self in other. And it's a core Filipino value where other cultural values kind of stem from, like bayanihan, you know, the way we help each other, our neighbors, uh, and um, like utang na loob, you know, our deep gratitude. Um, so here we are, we're revisiting and hopefully reinvigorating this sense of kapwa, uh, especially in these troubled times. We, we live in a lot of divisiveness. Um, people are just, you know, a lot of disconnection from one another. So the time is, you know, I think it's, it's good to, um, for us to revisit this kapwa and reconnect and, um, and revive our sense of shared, shared humanity. Uh, regardless of race, color, uh, skin color, dialect, uh, immigrant status, whether you're Pinoy born in the in the U.S. or in the Philippines, um, I think I think we tend to overly focus on our differences and the things that divide us. But really, at the core of our being is our shared humanity. And so, um, you know, in, in in my brothers and my in my sisters, I see myself, and and I see the image of God. So. Um, we have, we have a lot to cover. Um, like I said, I'm excited to hear from our experts who really have given this some thought, especially coming from their fields of psychology and theology. Um, but I think first let's um, begin with, with this beautiful song, very moving lyrics uh, that the, uh, the Ateneans for Social Justice have picked for this event. So I'll turn it over. Saan ka man naroon, saan 
Beautiful. I love that song. Um, and we have another song later on to play for you, so stay tuned for that. Um, <clears throat> I think we're ready to begin. I mean, I've been, like I said earlier, I've been really looking forward to this discussion. Um, like the song said, you know, our, our, our shared togetherness and coming together in this, in this space, in this virtual space, um, I think it just really shows you how much... Uh, um, how much of uh, a shared uh, humanity we have. So uh, let me just go ahead and um, introduce our speakers. And there's a little change in the sequence here. So, um, but let me introduce you to you the speakers, their background and their body of work. Um, let's start with uh, Dr. Testwasan. Testwasan is full professor and clinical director in the Clinical Mental Health Counseling Program at the University of North Florida and is a licensed psychologist. Tess was born and raised in the Philippines and came to the United States for her PhD in counseling psychology at the University at Albany, a state, of, state University of New York. She did her internship and postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Utah, uh, University Counseling Center and Department of Family and Preventive Medicine. Her research interests have focused on three areas, economic inequality and poverty, uh, my, and minority identity formation, family, child, and adolescent issues, utilizing systems, and cross-cultural perspectives. She has over 50 publications and over 100 conference presentations. Her research was funded by the UNF Foundation Board twice. She received, her, she received the Dean's Leadership Award in 2008, the Susan B. Anthony Award in 2011, the Outstanding Faculty Scholarship Award in 2012, and the Outstanding Graduate Teaching Awards in 2009 and in 2019. Above all, Tess advocates for 
mental health and the well-being specifically in her private practice in clinical research clinical and research collaborations with community agencies for evidence-based practice and in supervising counselors and training and uh, let me sneak in this quote about her uh, that an external reviewer for, for her promotion letter once wrote Tess is a faculty member you not only want to promote but to clone um, and I've known Tess for a short while and I, I completely agree um, <clears throat> Father Frank Savadera SJ uh, worked as a human resource development practitioner for companies like IMI Ayala Corporation La Tondeña San Miguel and Toyota Motor Philippines before joining the Jesuits in 1998. He has a BA in Behavioral Studies from the University of the Philippines, Manila, had taken units in Industrial and Organizational Psychology from De La Salle University, completed his MA in Pastoral Ministry from Loyola School of Theology, Ateneo de Manila, and his Doctor of Ministry degree with a focus on organizational development from Seattle University in 2019. That's where I met him. Um, and at the beginning of the lockdown, he was able to complete a certificate in diversity and inclusion from E. Cornell University. And he just moved back to the Philippines after a year of internship at the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts, where he delved into student affairs, multicultural education and diversity, equity and inclusion work. He currently heads the formation cluster for basic education at the Xavier University in Cagayan de Oro City, uh, a work that entails chaplaincy and the planning and the implementation of the overall formation program for students, faculty, non-teaching personnel, and other stakeholders. Father Frank was ordained a Catholic priest in 2009 and was first assigned to teach theology at the St. John Vianney Theological Seminary in Cagayan de Oro uh, before serving as the Jesuit Philippine Province's Director of Vocational Promotions. Um, so is, is Alma on? Do we have Alma on? Um, maybe I should just go ahead and read her bio now, even yeah. though she's not here. Um, so Alma, Dr. Alma Villegas Schwalbenberg, She's not here, so I'm not sure if I said that correctly. Uh, Schwalbenberg is a licensed clinical psychologist based in New York City. She graduated from the Ateneo de Manila University with a bachelor's degree in psychology, batch 80, and a master's in community psychology in 1987. She is batch one of JVP and helped set up the psychology department of Xavier University in Mindanao. She has a PhD in developmental psychology in 93 with, from Fordham University uh, she's been working in a hospital in the South Bronx for the past 14 years, seeing patients uh, mostly from minority groups with HIV and AIDS. She was part of the faculty of Albert Einstein School of Medicine, Department of Psychiatry. She conducts, a psycholo psych she conducts psychological evaluations to help Filipino human trafficking victims obtain work visas and bring their families to the U.S. She has her own clinical practice called AVS, which is the same as um, acronym, acronym as her name, uh, where she provides crisis intervention in individual and family therapy to patients from all over the world, from Qatar, Barbados, and France. And she has conducted cross-cultural workshops in South Africa, Paris, France, and the Philippines. So as you can see, I, uh, as I said earlier, we are very blessed 
to have these professionals uh, and priests take time from their busy schedules and, and share their insights and their um, years of experience helping their kapwa in, in the U.S., in the Philippines, and around the world. Um, so I uh, think at this point, I'll go ahead and turn it over to um, Dr. Tess. You're still on mute, Tess. Okay. All right. Thank you. Sorry about that. <laughs> all right. Oh my gosh, we had so many. And first of all, I'd like to thank you, uh, thank each one of you for joining us. Uh, BJ said that you know that we're lucky to have our to have the our. Um, our speakers, but actually we are very lucky to have this chance to be able to share with you some of our work uh, or some for some of us, some of our life work. Okay, I thought um, I'd like to start to just let you know that the Kapwa that I'm talking about, where we're looking for the face of God, is among our family, our friends, and even our enemies, right? That's the Kapwa part of what I wanted to focus on. Okay, so I'd like to start by telling you that uh, my, with my colleagues and I, what we did was we did a uh, research on looking for the very, for healthy coping patterns or ways of coping in COVID, right? We were trying to see who of the people are, um, oh, Melanie, we need to uh, change to the next slide, sorry. So, um, so we're looking for, what, what would make, you know, what would make COVID, what would make uh, people be psychologically well to be better off with, you, with COVID and this during our times? And uh, what would be good coping? So what we did was we did a survey on about 952 um, people, individuals living here in the US. And what we saw was that the people who were doing well during this time are the people who are actively coping. And what their active coping, the ones who are having time for themselves, relaxing, resting, re-energizing, being mindful, those who have time with their family, so playing with their children, you know, or talking to their spouse, talking to their partner, but having more time with family. And then the third one is doing family projects like doing things that they want to do at home, making jam, making bread, you know, gardening, you know, and these are the ones that we've seen that are healthy, healthy ways of coping. The ones that are not so healthy or the ones that did not so much um, focus on good psychological well-being are the ones where it's passive coping. And I think we would know this. What are they? Watching, vid watching Netflix, <laughs> watching, uh, doing video games, right? Or relaxing with our pets, you know? And so that kind of coping, when we're talking about primary coping, right? That kind of coping is the one that's not so helpful um, around this time. If it's, you know, if you do it, of course it's okay. But when, if it's the primary coping, then it's not so good, okay? So, but I think the most important thing that I'd like to share in that um, research is that what we found, what are significant predictors to good psychological, to psychological well-being um, during COVID? 
And among the nine predictors that are significant, so these are the ones that are significant, job security, neighborhood safety, spirituality, and physical health. But among all of those nine, um, these three are the most significant. They're the ones with the biggest, are, these are the biggest predictors. When we have intention, the intentionality to decrease social and emotional loneliness, like what we're talking about now, and the importance of self-agency, that we have, we have power, we have control over what we can do, right? And so I'd like to start off with that, with those two, what does it mean then with being now in COVID, right? So I think we all have um, gone through, we say roller coaster of emotions during COVID. Sometimes our bodies have also gotten into a roller coaster, right? Big and then, you know, with all the, the things that we eat or, 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 or exercise and et cetera. But I think the biggest thing is that COVID gives us the time to be able to reflect on our existential issues, right? It gives us pause. It gives us a time to see, okay, you know, is this life, well, you know, do I want, what are the things that I want to change? What are the things that I want to continue, right? And, and then here we see intention, like what is it that would help us then continue where we would want to go in our lives, right? especially with existential issues, then we are also confronted with the meaning of our lives. And I'd like to present to you just one important thing. If there's anything that you'd like to get from this 10-minute talk, it's this one, our accessibility to God's grace. I think especially this time, it gives us a pause to truly be available to God's grace. What, what does accessibility or availability mean? It means willingness and openness to seek God's face, right? And, that's, and there's an intentionality there and the, and the sense of agency. We want to seek God's face. You know, we're, we're not just passive, but we're wanting to search it and we're wanting to look for it in our silence and in the quietness, right? And these, there are the three things. We ac we're accessible to God's grace with self-love, with loving ourselves, um, especially with doing therapy um, in private practice, it's a lot of the things, a lot of the clients that we see, this is most of um, where the change episode happens. When people from their guilt, from their shame, and from their most painful feelings get in touch with their worth as being loved by God, right? With, with their worth, like um, that there are no that God doesn't have any conditions of worth, that we are loved no matter what, right? And to be able to give that gift uh, to themselves, that we, are, uh, that we deserve to be loved, that we are lovable. And um, a, a famous Jesuit, you know, Father Galdon would always say, you deserve to be happy, yes. Um, and he would tell that to everybody. But when I was young and 20 and he told that to me, I said, no. My life is supposed to be full of suffering, right? <laughs> Grow up in poverty, lots of suffering. But so this is a big insight. Really? God wants me to be happy, you know? And so, and so to, have, to have that in terms of like being able to be worthy uh, and deserving of happiness. The second one is gratitude. Gratitude over little things because when we have gratitude over little things, the little things become truly important. 
Um, and we do that. We seek that for, it, it changes a lot in terms of our attitude when we are grateful for things, even when they're very little. There's a saying that says, um, gratitude turns what we have into enough, right? It turns what we have into enough. And so we become, we, we become full. We allow ourselves then to celebrate whatever little, um, whatever little um, it is, right? And, um, uh, and, and gratitude too, gratitude is wonderful because then it really puts us into a le another level. Um, instead of uh, whining and complaining, we, it brings us into contentment and it brings us into finding joy in little things. I had a, um, just, I had a very difficult week this past week and uh, in the middle of the week I had the doorbell rang and I had a, there was a woman with a, a cake, a sensory ball cake, which we never get here in Jacksonville. So it was a miracle, right? And it was sent by a good friend of ours, uh, Rhoda. And I thought, oh my gosh, there was no occasion. My son said, mama, it's not your birthday. There's no anniversary. There's no special occasion. But then I thought, but wow, you know how she is able to, I mean, she made my day, but at the same time too, it made my family's day. But also it's like, whoa, God really knows what I want, <laughs> right? It's, it's just that, that um, sometimes you just, it's as simple. Like it's, it's God really sustaining us through, through people, through the people in our lives, right? And then the last one is um, accessibility to God's grace in terms of vulnerability knowing that when we're vulnerable, especially with COVID, that's when we are the most strong. That's when we're the most uh, powerful. Harriet Lerner, a Bowen Family Systems um, psychologist, would say there's always something to propel us to change and there's always something to propel us to resist change. And vulnerability brings us to the point where we would need to change, right? Okay, so then we go to the next, um, next slide. We have, um, I was going to talk to you about our kapwa, the three kinds of kapwa, right? And so I'd like to invite you, I guess, to think of these three, three kinds of people in your lives. So the first we say, the people who we serve. Who are the people who we serve, right? Um, and think about that, who are the people we serve? Are they our, our children, our students? our clients, our coworkers, our customers, however way in vocation, and what do we give? These people help us to give, to give ourselves, to give our talents, and to give genuinely, and to give genuinely meaning to come from fullness, right? Um, in, in, in counseling work or in training our counselors, I always say you cannot give what you do not have. You cannot. Uh, Dr. Purvis in TBRI, a trust-based relational intervention, would say, you cannot bring places, you cannot bring people to places you haven't been. You cannot give empathy if you don't have empathy towards yourself. You cannot help people respond to their painful feelings if you cannot do that for yourself, right? And so the intention, I think, when we serve people so that we can serve out of fullness and out of self-love, is to be, a, to be available to God's grace for self-love, to be able to do that for ourselves, to have inner compassion so that then we can truly be genuine in helping 
other people, right? So that's how, that's our intention for the people we serve, okay? The next one is the people who are, I, I was going to say the people we hate, <laughs> right? Like our enemies, but I'd go with the people who are difficult, the people in our lives who are difficult to love, right? So these are, for example, or the people that we do not care for, they are, for example, uh, an abusive, a manipulative coworker, right? Or people who, who we are, who we, we see and, and um, interact with perhaps every day. When we go back to it, their brokenness, they, with their brokenness, they challenge us and they challenge us to what? They challenge us to grow. So even with this abusive coworker, for example, we're able, what we do with a task there or the intention is to be vulnerable, to be able to change, right? And what is the change there? Sometimes it means for that, for that coworker, oh, okay, I thought, I thought Melanie's trying to cut me off. <laughs> All right, uh, our, and, the, and the challenge there is to have, let's say for that abusive coworker, is to have a voice, to own our power, to be able to advocate for ourselves and for others. Or a difficult person to love, for example, can be a difficult child, a teenager that perhaps would reflect for us or that would trigger us in terms of having, let's say, trigger us with our old wounds. And our, and our unfinished businesses in our own family of origin. And what's the, the vulnerability to growth there? It means to perhaps go into our inner child healing. It would mean perhaps allow ourselves to change, to heal, to be able to forgive ourselves or even to forgive another, right? Or let's say, for example, a friend or a family member who is dependent on us for money or dependent on us for time or dependent on us for emotional energy, what's the task there or what's the intention? We grow, we change, and we grow to create boundaries for ourselves so that then we're able to say no. We're able to have, teach people to be able to respect us because we are able to respect ourselves. And then the last is the people that we love. The people we, we love are, are helpful because they're our companions in our journey, but then they also help us to receive. And the intention there is for them, with them to be, to be thankful and always to never forget to play. They teach us to play. Our kids teach us to play. Whatever it is, you know, that we do, we, this is, I guess, what I was telling you where God wants us to be happy because like in we we dream and we create when we're able to play like the the best research questions i have come from doing zumba for example or the best teaching activities that i think of are when i'm doing or when i'm ten, playing tennis you know or, or things like that but then it also helps us to be more mindful in our lives that everything that we do uh is gift from god and we have the people who we love and the people who love us uh, to be with and so these are the three kinds of people, the people we serve who help us with self-love, the people who, who are difficult to love to help us to be vulnerable, to grace, to change, and the people we love who help us then to play. That's it, Pansit. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>
Thank you. Okay, Father goes next. So I go immediately. All right. So let me do my stopwatch there. So the the topic uh, I have uh, will be flashing the PowerPoint now. Okay. Is uh, revisiting and reviving Kapwa, but more so in the light of uh, living the spirit of this Kapwa in community and the church with a perspective of theology you know, or. Uh, um, the spirit, uh, the faith that uh, we would like to manifest and live in our communities. So we have our PowerPoint here. There you go. This is Melanie doing the PowerPoint, right? Yes. I can address Melanie. Melanie, we can just... Uh, Move to the next one. Yeah, we can just put everything together. Na lang. Uh, there, okay. So I begin with this frame uh, in saying that uh, I've outlined my talk into three points. Firstly, Kapwa, living Kapwa is uh, a way to create space. Uh, we have to create that space of encounter so that we would get to know and encounter who that Kapwa is. Secondly, uh, I would like to cover the topic of uh, an openness to the multiplicity of Kapwa. When we encounter Kapwa, we know that it is, uh, it's not totally different from who we are. So what do we do? And hopefully as we find ourselves uh, interacting with each other, Kapwa, uh, we get to inspire each other to hope. So next slide, please. <clears throat> so I just would like to uh, take off from what Tess was saying. There is such a thing as accessibility of grace to individual persons. And I think this is what we experience when we take the Ignatian exercises. I don't know if you've had your seniors retreat. But I've accompanied seniors, Ateneo seniors, during their retreat. And every after a retreat, they feel so full, right? Uh, they're so blessed. Uh, they're so grateful about, uh, you know, God loving them. And so, but then we do not stop there. We say that we would like to extend that uh, grace that we have received to, to others in our community and in the church. And so, by, by, uh, by, by saying that, we would like to refer to Pope Francis saying that we are never completely ourselves uh, unless we belong to a people. And I think this is uh, the story of uh, um, the people of God. If, even if we talk about uh, those who went through Exodus, those who have been called not only as individual persons, uh, but we serve a purpose for the community. And even uh, another uh, Orthodox pastor, uh, John Zizulas, was saying this kind of belongingness to community is an ontological thing. It's something that we, we experience. It's part of our nature. It's very innate. Uh, how is it like for us to say, I'm a person, but I'm just living inside my room? I've experienced that during quarantine because I'm just coming out of quarantine. And so I feel that I'm very much eager to makipagkapwa, to, to know who the other is. Uh, this is very unnatural for us to, to just be in one room, uh, especially during this quarantine time and people are having a lot of difficulty. Um, I say that also in the light of uh, the context that we are in, that there is what we call neo-tribalism, that we, we simply can be very comfortable staying with our own groups, our own identity groups, and we find safety and comfort there. 
But then there are problems associated with that, as we know, when we say tribalism. In Filipino parlance, we call it almost like regionalism. We come from different tribes. No? But then if we do so, even in the United States, uh, I've been there for four years, um, you know that people are always debating about different opinions. Uh, elections uh, are coming up. And there's a phenomenon of, uh, of polarization of positions. Uh, uh, I, I'm sure you're very much also in, in involved in all those things. And in the process, and we can be part of this as well, that we tend to demonize the people uh, who are totally different from us. Oftentimes, we shut them off or there's a culture of canceling or ca ca cutting off people from our circles. So that's what we call neo-tribalism. No? And, and what would Kapwa be and what would our faith be? Uh, what would um, our belief system say about that kind of interaction in our community? So Leonardo Boff, one of our liberation theologies is saying, it's a process of communing, which is very important, which is a mutual acceptance of giving, which is not easy. It can be very difficult. And part of that is being present to one another and sharing expectations and hope of being heard, uh, especially those who, whom we would choose not to hear, uh, and uh, experience of being accepted while si simultaneously hearing and receiving the reality of another. We know that this is easy to say, but where we're in the field, where when we are in community, it's just so difficult to live, right? So the basic question we would like to ask is are we engaged in creating the space of kapwa or communion? I, I like what BJ was saying, kapuang. Uh, Kuang is space. We're, we're trying to build that space, creating that space when everyone can be themselves. Okay. So next slide, please. So creating space to encounter kapwa. Well, the next experience is, I think it is something that we can uh, ask ourselves as well. If we are in community, are we open to the multiplicity of kapwa? Multiplicity means, meaning there's a lot of a, di a diversity of kapwa that we see around. So, but then people are saying uh, uh, Miroslav Bob, a person who, a theologian who experienced segregation in Croatia, he said, history is full of the worst violence committed in the name of identity. I've been in the States, as I said, and I realized that identity is very crucial. It's very important a topic uh, amongst people nowadays. And oftentimes, we do not know that if we push it further, you realize that I, people have been suppressed uh, because of their identity. And now they're asserting themselves a lot. But then also... Asserting identity can also be very difficult, and it's quite challenging as well, uh, living that in, in community. So Miroslav Volk was saying, our failings to engage in communal existence or our knowing or unknowing participation in conflicts around us root themselves, believe it or not, in our assertions of who we are. And this is what we, we know in the experience of Hitler, right? Uh, he was asserting a certain model of uh, German identity and oftentimes we would like to see it uh, in the level of persons uh, if we get to assert ourselves in a, a quite strong way uh, that would have an impact on Pakikipagkapwa. 
Uh, Cynthia Linder, another pastor uh, and um, uh, a theologian, was saying, rather than having a single distinct and uniform self, and this is more or less her response to uh, having a single track uh, mind in dealing with uh, Kapwa, can we also see ourselves <coughs> uh, have, having a single distinct, rather than having a sing single and distinct uniform self, each of us consists also of multiple characters, uh, constructions of self-perceptions, which correspond to various settings and relationships in which we find ourselves. So oftentimes we say, I, I don't know if you've met people who, who, who you know, have a, a, a fixed way of doing things. And it's so difficult. It's so difficult in, in, to influence that person. It's very challenging to influence that person because the, the, the mind has been set already. And so what Cynthia Linder is saying, can we be open to the possibility that we have, we, we, can, we can opt for multiple mindedness. We can have a sense of flexibility as well in looking at things, knowing that we do not have the answer to everything. Can we have the capacity to embrace an, an, another person who is different from us and be more tolerant of plurality around us? You may want to catch yourself, for instance, if someone is saying something totally different from what you believe. How, how does that impact our pakikipagkapwa, our relationship with that person? Okay, so our ability to hold multiple understandings and emotions simultaneously is, is important to enable individuals to function in a variety of roles they each inhabit. So in order for us to recognize the multiplicity of Kapwa, we recognize also within us, hopefully an openness to multiple mindedness. We can be flexible, right? And not be too fixed. Next slide, please. And another topic that I would like to suggest is that Kapwa hopefully becomes a praxis of Hope. Uh, we all have the mission and we're all called to inspire hope in one another. Uh, most especially these, these days when people are despairing. Most especially these days when people are, well, I know of a lot of people, some at least three friends of mine that I know who died because of COVID. So how, how do we respond to Kapwa and inspire hope in that sense? So I have here a line from Barack Obama in 2007. He's just describing the, the, the context that we have these days. And it says, the street corners of ghettos are gathering places for young men and women without hope. People are losing hope. They don't know what miracles are anymore. And without a sense of destiny other than life on the edge, the edge of the law, the edge of the economy, the edge of family structures and community. You know, I, I, I was in Bilibid uh, in Muntilupa uh, and I didn't know about death row. There was still death row there and we just entered this room. And I was asking a prisoner there, Kailan po kayo lalaya? When are you going to be free? Uh, and I, I didn't realize that it was death row. And there was a lot of, you know, despair in, in that place. And even the, the place itself is very dark. So uh, more than simply the... More, more than simply the jails or Montelupa, we realize that even outside, people are not feeling free about things around them. So how do we inspire hope 
Gustavo Gutierrez, our other uh, theologian uh, of liberation, tells us, the poor and the marginalized have a deep-rooted conviction that no one is interested in their lives and misfortunes. And so this person I was talking to was saying, uh, well, I am here. I've done crazy things in my life. Uh, I, I feel sorry for what I have done. Also because when I was growing up, no one has actually given me attention. Uh, so no one cares anyway. So if, even if I kill anyone, it doesn't matter because no one cares. No one gives mm -hmm. attention. So giving hope or inspiring hope is simply about simply recognizing one another and doing that, giving, acknowledging the presence of uh, a person is already giving the person a blessing. I just like to end here with a, a quote from Brian Massingale. You may want to read on him. He's a Catholic priest involved in social justice work. Uh, he was saying, the praxis of justice must also be a praxis of hope. The pursuit of justice must be guided by a vision capable of inspiring hope that can sustain a people in the face of always difficult, often elusive, and perhaps permanent quest for full recognition. So just three points I would like to give you, and there are questions there in the last page. Uh, create space to encounter Kapwa. The question is, how are we engaged in creating spaces of communion? Uh, second point, an openness to the multiplicity of Kapwa. How are we recognizing and accepting the variety of identities around us? How are we called to develop multi-mindedness? And lastly, Kapwa as a praxis of hope. How are we called to be agents of hope and inspire hope in others? Thank you. So good evening, everyone. Uh, we had technical problems, and so we're going this the most creative way. Uh, this is a three-way uh, presentation because Alma will be using her phone to share her presentation, okay? So please let me know if it's clear. Yes. Alma? Yes. Can you hear her? Go ahead, Alma. Okay. I need to apologize for the technical difficulties. It's always the first time with this kind of stuff, right? But I'm very fortunate that we have such a very patient audience. And the show must go on. Finding out the lighting and makeup, but <laughs> the message will be clear. So um, thank you for the two other speakers who went ahead with me, right? and father and so we have to work backwards now I was supposed to begin provide the reality check but it seems that destiny wants us to look at the ideal that we have to we have to strive for and my my job is to share with you my experiences with with not only the concept of Kapwa or the other but also share the, the flesh and blood of Kapwa. And I was sharing with Donna that my approach to Kapwa is with my experience with human trafficking survivors is to draw a picture of the non-Kapwa, the non-person. I remember my favorite 
subject in um, when I was in college um, with Father Intangan was um, uh, liberation theology, theory, theology of, of liberation. And one thing that I took away was the concept of non-persons, right? That we can look at our kapwa or at the other person as non-existent. So uh, I had the, um, the fortune not with Filipino human trafficking um, victims, but the political, uh, more politically correct concept is human trafficking survivors. And uh, I just started this work uh, like a year or two years ago when um, when a, non a Filipino nonprofit agency reached out to me. And so I was exposed to, to the needs of this population. And in the U.S., right, even in the within this Trump administration, there is a window that, that they could um, have the opportunity to bring their families here in the U.S. And that is by having a T visa, T visa, T as in trafficking. The trafficking visa, if they get it, right, they would be able to stay and work and live in the U.S. and bring their families in the U.S. But they have to prove that they were trafficked. And that's when um, they, they come to the psychologists because, you know, psychologists have the, have the psychological assessments to determine if they really experience trauma in the process. And judges like the work of psychologists because we're very objective. Right? Unlike other professionals, you, you know, it can be very subjective. So, that, so that's the benefit of getting a psychological assessment. So, in short, I just really want to focus on helping you see the world of uh, a human trafficking survivor, how a human trafficking survivor look, feel, behave by showing you the results of my psychological assessments. So, I will show you a, the psychological profile of a human trafficking survivor. So, um, now let's take a look at the PowerPoint. I don't know if you see my notes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, um, uh, okay. So let's start with the definition. Human trafficking is a modern day slavery and involves the use of force, fraud, or coercion to obtain some type of labor or commercial sex act. My experience is it's really limited to the labor um, human trafficking situations. And how would you know if a person is a victim of human trafficking? No, I mean, you may, you may have encountered them or those who are through interviews or even your own personal experiences. The red flags, potential red flags are one. If you talk to them, right? They share a scripted or inconsistent history, right? Because they live in the shadows, and they really cannot reveal their true selves, right? Because um, they're afraid. They're afraid that they will be found out, and then, you know there are like legal consequences. So you know different years that they would come. So it's all either inconsistent or you know this it's it's scripted. So the second one is the unwillingness or hesitancy to answer questions about injury or illness. 
for the, you know, they come to the ER or the medical field, right? They, they'd rather, actually, they'd rather not go to the emergency room if, even if they have medical needs because, again, they don't want their status revealed, right? And another red flag is if the person is accompanied by an individual who does not let the patient speak for oneself, refuses to let the patient have privacy. So they're never left alone, and usually the trafficker would you know, finish their sentences or finish their stories for them. And the fourth one is evidence of controlling or dominating relationships. Right? Excessive concerns about pleasing a family member, romantic partner, or employer. So human trafficking can happen within families, right? And, uh, you know, family members, they uh, have the best intentions, but sometimes the worst results. Another red flag is the person will demonstrate fearful or nervous behavior and, or avoids eye contact. Nervios. I can't look at things straight in the eye. And then the person may be unable to provide his or her address, right? Because the life, if your traffic is, you keep moving from job to job, which may take you to different states. There are circumstances, they start off in Florida, when there's no job in Florida, the trafficker would move them to uh, North Carolina, and then they'll move them to New Jersey, then back to Florida. That's year-round. They keep moving. So there's no really permanent address. Another one is the person is not aware of his or her identification documents. Some situations, the traffickers would take their, you know, their visas, their passports, so they're really at the mercy of the traffickers. You know, usually start as recruiters in the Philippines. Also, the person is not in control of his or her own money. Usually, um, expenses like housing or your food, which in the original contract, you know, the hiring agency would say, oh, that housing is free, food is free, right? And then um, there's free transportation to bring you to the workplace, back to home. All these are in the contract. but. These promises are, in reality, never fulfilled or semi-fulfilled. So, um, so there's a situation also that they're not paid or wages are withheld. There are situations that um, it takes you know months to be paid, and when or when they get paid, it's like there's one situation. Um, I evaluated the woman and she said she earned 58 cents an hour. 58 cents an hour. I said, how could that be, right? In the U.S. and 58 cents an hour. An hour. Because once she gets a paycheck, you know, the house, the rent has been deducted, food has been deducted, transportation has been deducted. So she ends up really with nothing to send to her uh, family members in the Philippines. Then some other indicators of labor trafficking is um, there's usually abuse at work or threatened with harm by an employer or supervisor. What happens is there, my experience with some of them, they, they end up like uh, 
you know, they would apply as housekeepers or workers in hotels, and you know, they'll be required to clean eight, eight to ten rooms a day. So imagine you cleaning your house. So eight to ten rooms, unless <laughs> it's like cleaning two houses, and you have to clean two or three, and they're big rooms, and then you have to finish within a day and you have to rush you know you have to rush so what happens is number two what happens is they don't take adequate breaks they don't have time to eat no food or water while at work so what happens is all throughout the day you know, either they fail to eat or they fail they eat very late at night or when they when they get home and usually the stories are they too tired to eat and um, and the third year is not provided with adequate personal protective equipment for hazardous work, especially if they're in the you know cleaning professions. They they you know use all these um, cleansing agents you know without gloves, and they're exposed to that every day. So they end up really you know really sick. You know they get their allergies. Their their hands get burned. It's um, but again, because they don't have the medical insurance, they don't seek help. They try to use over-the-counter, and um, you know, they, they just try to live with the pain. And then um, number five, no, number where am I now? Number four was recruited for different work than he or she's currently doing. So when they apply for their uh, for the H two B visa, right? Um, on the contract, they say they're, for example, they're house housekeepers, but then what or hotel, you know, like chambermaids. But once they get there, they they have to do backbreaking work. Like they have to do the, they have to go to the restaurants of the hotel. And for the men, they have to do construction work, even if they're just supposed to clean the rooms in the hotel. So they add extra work for them. And then number five required to live in housing provided by an employer so from the from the subjects i evaluated usually these housing conditions are really deplorable there was one situation when oh, the woman with i think eight or there eight or twelve of them filipino workers from the philippines they ended up in an apartment with with um, furniture with bed bugs. Of course, they didn't realize what bed, bed bugs are. <laughs> the bed bugs <laughs> look different, so they had all these, you know, the red, the red spots and all. And they found that though the furniture they got were discarded furniture thrown in the, you know, in the garbage. So that was the first few weeks in the U.S. Can you imagine that kind of life? And. Um, the last one is has a debt with the employer or recruiter that he or she cannot pay off. So part of the, the enticement is, you know, the you know, you'll be earning dollars, you'll be earning, you know, like the props ten, twelve hours, twelve dollars an hour. So what happens while in the Philippines they borrow money, they use their you know, a relative house as collateral. So they start off with very, very huge debts. And then when they come here, they hope that they would be able to pay you know, the debtors. But because of all the deductions that I was planning ahead of time, they really, they really can't get out of that debt anymore. And they, some 
situation, they stop talking to the relatives because right, they cannot, you know, they don't have any positive answer to see what they can be. Now, I'm talking of um, survivors who've lived here in the U.S. for like minimum 10 years. So they would leave, you know, some of their children as infants, some like in third grade, and then after 10 years, right, can you imagine some of, some of the kids have finished college? So I, I noticed that whenever I talk about their kids, they really break down. Just imagine if you have not seen your children for 10 years. And one of my clients, she said she stopped calling them already. She stopped because it just is too painful for her. So I told her, you know, when you stop, right? It's like... Uh, um, they become estranged, and I've seen situations when you know the children get very resentful, and they like they kind of disown them already. You know, it's just these parents sacrifice their whole lives here right? and, and for the children, but then their relationship with the children just disintegrate because of the distance and all the um, psycho-emotional um, side effects of human trafficking. Let's look at the common psychological symptoms of a human trafficking survivor. What is their psychological makeup? I've broken down into four different areas. One, the survivor will have cognitive symptoms. In my interviews with them, they will show memory impairments. They have a hard time, you know, like, when did I come here or what day is it now? Everything's a haze to them because it's like there's no end in sight, right? They don't know what their future is, especially with the pandemic. Right? It's harder for them to find jobs you know, because um, one, they don't have the papers. Two, they, they're taken advantage of because they, you know, the potential employers know that these are very desperate people right, who will accept anything. And then um, they also exhibit poor concentration, difficulty focusing, you know, because they're always thinking, you know, if your loved ones at home, right? And, you know, if you're so homesick, right? It's so hard to, to think about the here and now. And also the past traumas, how people took advantage of them and the really extreme physical difficulties of the, the demands of the work. So they also suffer from the term they use is para raw natutulala. You know, their co-workers would say, Bakit para natutulala? No, they're not they're not they're not present in the present. Now some social emotional symptoms, you know, depression, you know, learned helplessness, that, you know, when you when you feel that you cannot change your situation, you, know, you feel very helpless. So a lot of them suffer from major depression. One after work, he would just come home and close the curtains and lie on his bed the whole day. And he would just, you know, just get up, get up to eat his ramen. That's it. He doesn't socialize. He doesn't come out of his room. Another one is suicidality, you know, because of the desperation and because of the hopelessness of the situation. I remember one, one, um, worker, but um, she was so nervous about the results of her um, of her appeal. She said that you know, 
gets deported, then she said that she will bring poison when she's in the plane. Now she had she had this plan, right? That she will never be caught alive being deported because of, you know it's such a shame and you know, when they get back there with all the bits. He told her, Look, she has, she has um, I think, an only son. And I said, You know, I mean, will your son think about it? Because, I mean, she doesn't care anymore what happens to her. But don't you remember that you know, our actions does not end without with ourselves, right? There are repercussions on our loved ones. So she kind of, hopefully, she remembers what we talk about. You could see their anguish, their desperation, right? It's just, you know, it's at a rock in a hard stone. Mm-hmm. And they also suffer from anxiety, panic attacks, especially when they see, you know, the police, when they hear news, this anti-immigration news on TV. They have new spe- and specific phobias, you know, because they hear about the ICE now, you know, the ICE agents knocking on doors. Um, generalized anxiety because they don't know when they'll be picked up, you know, so they're always nervous. And, um, oh, I think I missed a page here. I don't know if it's there, but some trauma symptoms of hypervigilance, they're always, you know, checking who's, who's behind me. They're always scanning the environment, you know, making sure you know, if there's a police there. You know, one situation, he was at the bus stop and there was a police, he ran away. He, he didn't wait for his boss, he just ran away. And there's suspicion of suspiciousness and paranoia. So most of them stop socializing with other Filipinos because they're experienced. I mean, you know, they're afraid that fellow Filipinos will wrap them out. And physiological symptoms, right? This, the sufferings, physical and even the emotional, lead to more medical problems. One traumatization of fear. If you're exposed to constant fear, anxiety, depression, some um, shared falling hair, digestive issues, acid reflux. Right? They say what the emotional gut. Feel the emotional gut when you're anxious. Butterflies in the stomach. And then imagine if you have that all day long. Your body kind of breaks down. And then they develop you know, diabetes, hypertension, obesity. Either they don't have any appetite or you they overeat. Extremes. And lastly, interpersonal issues, right? So at work, they can be irritable or they isolate. They don't want to talk to other co workers because it's, you know, what story will they tell, right? So they, so that's the profile. So they, they're perceived as aloof. And um, so what's my take home message, right? How, how it can be very far from the ideal of what Kapwa, right? And what, what can be conducive to a, a, you know, Christian or a human view of, and relating with with our kapwa and um my my own experience tells me that the more the more i live my life for my kapwa is actually a very selfish act because i benefit so much from the interaction and so, so for my last slide 
I would like to share with you the, I call it love letters from, from human trafficking survivors whose cases were approved. I don't know if you have the, the minutes. Okay. Um, so I, I, those are the letters that I would get next to me. So for example, I don't know if um, that's what I typed. <laughs> he says, good morning, dog. I produce na po, na-approve na po kami ng anak ko. Thanks so much, dog. You add a lot of good help sa aking case. Time to celebrate, dog. Sometime soon, I'd like to send you or thank you and God is really good. Thanks for the prayers, then. Have a wonderful day, po. And what I like is the second one. Good morning, po, dog. Sana po safe and good health po kayo, dog. Good news, po. Na-receive ko na po ang employment authorization ko po. Sana po, marami pa po kayong matulungan. Ingatan at samahan po kayo ng Diyos. Salamat po at salamat po. So just an example how, right, this cannot be measured in dollars and cents, right? So I feel so rich and so blessed and I feel, and I think um, that's what comforts us to all of us who reach out and make a difference in our own little way. What, wherever you are, whatever you and it helps create what Tess and, and Father have, have shared to you. And that's all. So thank you for your patience again. And if you have any questions, feel free. <laughs> thank you, Alma. Very welcome. Thank you, Alma. Thank you, uh, um, Father Frank and Tess, for really sharing your insights and your, your professional insights and your expertise and also your, uh, your faith. I think, um, I mean, it's, it's a true testament to like um, the, 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 the core value of Capua, right? I, and I can't help but be reminded of um, Anthony Bourdain, you know, the TV personality who passed away in 2018, he said this about Filipinos because he, tra he traveled to the Philippines quite a few times. And he said that Filipinos are, for reasons I have yet to figure out, probably the most giving of all people on the planet. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, that, so that's, that's what I was thinking of the whole time, just listening to, to, to our speakers. And, and that brings me to my, I guess, my question uh, to, to, to all three of you. Because uh, it sounds like you all are working in, in fields where you are deeply engaged and in, in, in really helping others, in helping your kapwa. And, and, um, and just listening to your presentations, uh, very moving. It, it really seems to me that you're doing your, what you are called to do uh, and you're intentional about it. So what made, what made you get into your, your field of work? Or, you know, in, in religious life, they call it vocation, right? What, what made you... Uh, kind of respond to, to, to your vocation, to your calling? Okay, perhaps I'll start. I, um, when you were asking the question, BJ, I kept saying, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. <laughs> um, but uh, because I thought, where, where do I start? But perhaps I, I'll start off with where I am right now. I'm, I'm doing counseling. I'm doing counseling practice, but I also train counselors so in a sense 
being being able to invest in myself and in my own healing i'm i'm able to teach others to be counselors so it's almost like multiplying um multiplying that investment in taking care of others but every time every time i teach do research and especially in therapy i always i always pray and ask god to use me as his heart today you know i think that and if that that makes um a lot of meaning uh but also a lot of um inspiration in the work so i think that's for me, Vijay, you know, as a Jesuit in, uh, you know, in our initial formation, we've been exposed to a lot of, you know, social justice issues. We live amongst the poor. We live uh, with people who have no insurance, those who do not have uh, the means to take care of themselves. And I, I, I see that, you know, uh, the work that I do now is uh, I, I'm doing multicultural education and I delve into diversity and inclusion work. There's a lot of people in the peripheries. Uh, oftentimes, we tend to neglect uh, because we can already be comfortable where we are. And so I, I'm just very passionate about how or how can we group uh, and regroup if that is possible so that we are able to reach out uh, and sustain that reaching out process to those who are in the peripheries, uh, those who are mar marginalized. In the U.S., you get to talk about race issues a lot, right, uh, and political issues a lot. But even in the Philippines, even if we don't talk about race, there's segregation happening uh, even in our societies today. We get to cancel off people because they're different from us and we don't have the time perhaps even to listen. So for me, I'm just passionate about bringing everyone and including everyone into you know, uh, progress and development and hopefully we all take part in that work as well. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Father. And I don't know if Alma can join us now. Alma, it's your turn. Yes. Okay. The first question. What's the question? Can you repeat the question? Uh, just, um, just how did you get into what what made you get into that work that you're doing now? Oh, okay. Um, well, I, I don't know if you read my background, right? So, uh, in college, um, I was part of the counter. I mean, I, I hope I was part of the counter culture. And then I, I became a just volunteer, like Donna and all the other people. It kind of, the first, I noticed that the first job that you after college really just colors your life's work so I tend to gravitate towards you know what again the how in race theology the uh, the uh, what do you call that preferential option for the poor that's what it is because yeah, the services are so you know few and if not, in the quality too it's not so I, you know, I got the trust, <laughs> the talent, the talent as you can see, to be honest, I wish there were more Filipino psychologists, but this is it, this is it, it's just me. Because they don't speak English that well, right, from different dialects, and of course, at least Tagalog, they believe in that, right? So, 
and um, yeah, the need is great. The need is just so great, and and then they don't have the money, right? And I can't, I don't have the heart to say no. I can't, I can't help you because you don't have any money. No, that's that's what it is. So what's nice is um, it's a lot of good karma, and I see a lot of good things happening in my life because of that. We accumulate good karma. I mean, it's a pra- it's a pragmatic approach for me. In that sense, of course, I mean, you have to be also very spiritual to survive this kind of work because you get re-traumatized from the stories, right? They're always crying. I mean, every single one of them always crying. <laughs> and then we need to nurture ourselves, right? To make sure we take care of our own mental health. So did I answer your question? Yes, it does. Thank you. And Donna, thank you for making that happen. I like the... The creative creativity there. <laughs> BJ, there's just a question on the chat box there. Yes, it's uh, do, you, do you see it, Father? I think right, it's for right. you actually. So can I can I just read? I just want to add that our group Ateneos for Social Justice was formed after the massive BLM protest. Uh, how can we strongly connect and stress our own Filipino concept of kapwa to other people of races and culture and traditions and transcend over our own? Tribalism, which is very true. We're also very racist ourselves, um, which is a product of our Filipino upbringing, so that we can accept and relate more with these people and so we can respond to a more Christian way. You know, uh, there's an impression of Filipino communities uh, in the United States as far as Seattle is concerned. When I was there, I was moving around the parishes. Even uh, the non-Filipinos, they say that we're a very, we have a very dynamic and collectivist culture and so totally different from a, a very individualistic uh, I, I do my own thing kind of culture that people are so used to so even uh, I suppose we get to fight and we have frictions even among our, even amongst ourselves right but even the very fact that we come together is already an inspiration for others uh, we will have to deal about how we relate with one another internally but even that example of just uh, coming together, sharing food, uh, sharing our culture, dancing. Uh, oftentimes when we think of interventions, we think about very profound and very you know, orchestrated interventions. But even in our theology, in our life of faith, uh, the life of witness is very important, right? Um, I, I think that's how I can perhaps uh, address that. Uh, and also, I think it's very difficult. We know it's challenging also to reach out to other uh, uh, groups of different races, especially when we know that we have been impacted negatively by discrimination. Uh, but then that's the challenge of Christian life, right? Uh, even if someone asserts you, we keep on trying, we keep on reaching out. Um, that, that's that's uh, what we are supposed to do. So I, I think we have that. We, we grew up with that kind of faith. And I, I think it's difficult to practice that. But uh, we need to just challenge ourselves continually to give generously, as St. Ignatius would tell us, uh, even if it hurts. Thank you, Father. Um, I just want to make sure I didn't miss any other question here. And, and, and is that true? We have extended our time or what, what do we want to do with our schedule? Keep going. Uh, yeah, actually, good, because I have um, another question. Actually, I think it has something to do with what you just said, Father. I mean, 
you know, having lived here in the States, it's a different worldview, you know, um, and, you know, you, uh, you talked about, you know, the focus on identity um, <clears throat> to be more, the messaging here is, you know, for us to be more independent, more, um, uh, and we, we come from a different kind of worldview, you know, it's Filipinos, we're more, like you said, collectivistic, more, more, of, a in, in, more of that interdependence, um, and so, you know, I think it, uh, it's, it's, it becomes challenging, I think, uh, you know, like moving from, I, I grew up in the Philippines, so I'm accustomed to that kind of worldview, but coming here, it's a different messaging. But now I think it's also more becoming um, not just cross-cultural, but also maybe just the time, you know, we're, we're, the time we're living in, there's more emphasis on identity, like you said, more, more individuality. Um, uh, you know, I, and I see it now with my, with my kids, you know, I, I, I value the family-oriented worldview, you know, help your siblings, you know, you finish college, you help your, your siblings go to school and finish college. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I want my kids to be, um, to be independent also, to, 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 to be able to take care of themselves, to have nice jobs for themselves, to, to have, you know, decent house, decent job, um, nothing fancy, but just, you know, just a decent life. Um, but at the same time, not lose sight of uh, their connections to their, and, and, and intentional about it, not lose connection to their, to their parents, to their grandparents, their ancestors and, and their community. Um, you know, and, and you know, being Filipino Americans and you know, father being, having been here in the States, what do you think, um, I mean, how do you, I don't, I don't know if it's, you, you need to reconcile it or, you know, I don't think it's necessary that, but I think how do you kind of balance those two almost opposite worldviews? Right. You know, I get to encounter the word bayanihan all the time. Uh, I think more so in the United States than here. We, we, uh, we're using bayanihan all the more uh, in the United States than here in the Philippines now. But I'm trying to just inquire about what that uh, word means. You know, when, when we talk about Bayanian, it's uh, the he hero is the root word, right? Hero. So it's not, we're not just talking about just one particular hero. We, when we have Bayanian, we have that image of uh, a community carrying that kubo uh, on their shoulders. And it's just not one person doing that. So it's not just one Bayani, but everyone's a Bayani. Everyone's a hero. So I would like to think of Bayanihan as, you know, heroing. Everyone becomes a hero and everyone gets to exercise and manifest heroism. I, I get to say, because Filipinos in the United States also talk about crab mentality a lot and we hate each other for pulling each other down. I think it has something to do with Bayanihan. When we're saying we, we would like to improve, we would like to progress, it's not only the progress of one person, right? Uh, if you are moving up, don't forget the others. You have to bring others with you. So it's, it's, we're not satisfied with simply one person making it, mm -hmm. right? So I think that's what Bayanihan is about, uh, heroing for all. Uh, and I think that's a positive take on hopefully a counterpart to crab mentality. Bayanihan is moving up together. And we have that image of the Kuba being carried by everyone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Father. Uh, I have the same image in my head of Bayanihan, but uh, thank you. <laughs> Alma, Alma or Tess, do you have anything to add? Well, uh, I just wanted to add a little bit of, uh, of um, 
like our responsibility also living where we are. Um, I think one point is being able to be truly communal and to be together with other Filipinos because then it helps us with it just inspire you know with friendships maintaining life you know with our friendships but also uh, being inspired and being reminded of home a lot right and of our identity but I think the other responsibility for us to wherever we live whether it's in Australia whether it's in Chicago or that wherever it is I think we are all our responsibility too is being Filipino where we are being embedded in our culture which means sometimes also standing up for our fellow black person you know or, or, or it means where wherever we are in our worlds whether it's in at work or in the school of our children uh but i think that's also our responsibility to not just um speak up for ourselves but also be an ally and speak up for other others uh who are um disadvantaged or marginalized thank you thanks Tess. i also wanted to plug i'm batch 88 alma said she's batch 80 so i'm batch 88 <laughs> there's lots of bit batch 88 in the in the group <laughs> I, I don't know if alma has anything to add um and how we're doing on time i guess And thank you for the comments. We, we, we extended for 30 minutes, BJ, so we can, we're up to 7.30, so you can gather questions oh, more. Okay, Okay. so um, uh, I'm looking at the chat box, just making sure I didn't miss anything. Thank you for the comments. Uh, oh, I see Sister Gina Rama, thank you. Um, Bayan Nihan, moving up together versus grab mentality, which is also a characteristic of a Filipino, like very much. I really like the the perspectives. I mean, just hearing the different perspectives. Um, I think it's really helpful. And you know, I'm, I've I've been um, a psychologist now here in the states for ten years. I'm actually an organizational psychologist, and I know there's a growing um, uh, number of Filipino American psychologists in in the states, or at least the interest is there. I attended um, uh, one of our conferences two years ago, and and I think we had over about a hundred participants. So I think. There's a good response there, uh, but, but uh, like Alma said, I think there's still a need that, that's more culturally sensitive, mm -hmm. um, more, you know, the language is there. Um, but one thing I, I really uh, am amazed here in this, in this conversation here is uh, the psychologists talking about their faith, you know. Uh, it's, it's very rare <laughs> to find, to, to just be open about their faith, because, you know, I... I mean, for me, that was what fueled me to become a psychologist. I wanted to help people in that way. Um, and so, you know, Tess and Alma, I really appreciate hearing your perspective. Alma, you have anything to add? Wait. I guess not. <laughs> <laughs> this is a three-way thing. <laughs> Um, and I, so I have one more question, if I if if I may. If, uh, so, because I was thinking also about, um, you know, Tess, you talked about you know, uh, kapwa as your enemy, your enemy as your kapwa. Mm -hmm. so I thought it was kind of really 
brave. Mm-hmm. And it made me think of um, Mother Teresa when she was giving a talk to uh, prisoners. She said that uh, when she looks at them, she, you know, she's, she's looking at th- these angry men with their, with their tattoos on their neck and their faces. And, and she looks at them and says, I see the face of God. I see the face of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, that takes some strong spiritual will and a lot lot of prayers Mm -hmm. to get that kind of lens you know how do we i mean i don't know what you think but as a psychologist and and father frank also as a as a priest how do we start in in having that kind of uh that view uh Mm -hmm. what steps do we take to understand Mm -hmm. our enemies Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, well perhaps what i wanted to truly emphasize too is that the en- our enemies are there for a reason, right? Our, our enemies are there to show us or to teach us something. And I think when they're an enemy, then they really bring us to our knees in terms of our vulnerability. And so we are truly humbled because we cannot, like we know in, in psychotherapy or in, in psychology, we cannot change another person. We can only change ourselves but also sometimes changing ourselves is the most difficult thing to do, right? And that's why, that's why I say face of God, because it's, it's truly extending, it's truly calling our power and our worth, not from ourselves, but from God, um, to, be, to be able to, do, to make the changes. And then that's how we grow, right? Um, if we always resist to change or resist um, growth, then, uh, then we stagnate then we're farther and farther from God's image and likeness. Um, so that's how I see it. And then you said earlier about psychology and, and spirituality. Um, I guess in my practice, it's almost, almost automatic because there are clients that I see that sometimes, you know, even in terms of interventions or whatever, um, pinapasa ko na lang. Minsan pinapasa ko na lang. You know, sometimes I... I do the best I can, but afterwards I say, oh my gosh, please heal him, please bless him, you know, please. It's really beyond me. So I really just see myself as an instrument of change, just an instrument. And God does most of the magic. Of course, the quick answer for me is from scriptures, love your enemies, right? That's, uh, mm-hmm. And forgive your enemies as God uh, is forgiving you continuously. Right? But uh, in terms of you know the principle of communicating with others, uh, we have a lot of miscommunication even if uh, we're living in the world of uh, social media and access to technology. Um, uh, communication or non-communication with another person uh, has something to do also with how you communicate with yourself. Uh, mm-hmm. Oftentimes there's a lot of miscommunication because we don't start with the message clear even within us. So I think that's a prerequisite in terms of even acknowledging what that message is to me and for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, we always, as Tess was saying, we always need to begin with ourselves. So for instance, when we are angry, oftentimes we do not even know and we blurt mm-hmm. it out. And that becomes part of you know my expression that you are my enemy, right? Mm-hmm. But if we communicate with ourselves, uh, this person makes me angry and I get to ask why. Why would I respond to this this way uh, to a certain degree different from another person responding to that person, mm-hmm. uh, person saying statement? Can I actually communicate with me, with myself firstly, 
what is that about? So that I can, I, I, uh, in understanding what that phenomenon is to myself, perhaps I can be more forgiving of, of the person I get to understand. Ah, maybe that is what he was implying. Or maybe it was not directly, directed directly to me or about me. Uh, maybe he's just going through something. So that kind of uh, self-communication is important, I guess, uh, for us to be able to reach out even to our, you know, those who are difficult to love, our enemies. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. Self-communication. That's right. Yeah. Amen. Thank you, Father. Um, I'm looking at the chat box. I have, I think I have a few questions here. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. So... Let me, let me just, this one is right in front of me. So what, what's challenging? Pa, paano makikipagkapwa sa iba kapag ang kapag sang-ayon ang iba sa mga maling talakad ng gobyerno dito sa Pilipinas? Those behind a multitude of abuses and injustices, how difficult it is seeing God in them. Um, yeah. I don't know if you... Yeah. Yes. Very, very true. It, I think it's this, we have similar, we're in a similar situation in the Philippines and also here where there's just a lot of, sometimes it's, sometimes in, in some, in, in, in these situations, it's no longer clear for people what's right and wrong and what, and, and the sad thing, even when, when it's wrong, it's becoming more and more uh, powerful. Um, and, and, Truly, it is very difficult um, to see God in them. <laughs> Sometimes you even have friends that you just want to, you know, shake their. It, it's can you not see this? You know, back and on, you know. Uh, but you know, but then if I go back again to what I was telling earlier, then I go back to realize, okay, what does this mean for me? What can I change? And 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 I go back to oh, I need to stand up and to speak more. Uh, there's um, Edward Burke says, the only thing for triumph to evil, uh, for evil to triumph, sorry, the only thing for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. And I think with that, we are challenged as good people to do something, to speak out more, to act more, uh, to, be, to be allies more, you know, to just to do something. Mm -hmm. And not not reinforce and not uh, and not let and not be passive and let this go. Your, your question, your question, BJ. I, I can remember one instance uh, at the Ateneo uh, during the time of uh, era being elected mm -hmm. as president. Uh, so a lot of people in the urban poor were rallying in support of him, and I think this is the same with DDS folks, right? Uh, those who are supporting the current administration, or perhaps even Trump. Uh, it's kind of, you know, it's difficult to just accept that. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, it was a, 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 a unique experience for Athenians uh, listening to urban poor, urban poor people then telling uh, Athenians why they're supporting ERAP, right? And they're saying, uh, well, ERAP uh, is the image of who we are. We, 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 well, of course, we, can, we will have to qualify if that's an accurate uh, image, mm -hmm. right? But that's how they, they see him, mm -hmm. right? And we will need to reach out to them more and not to antagonize them so that we may be able to, you know, impress upon them our own understanding of situations. Mm -hmm. Mm 
because given uh, the limit to how they access information, right, uh, they may, they can easily be deceived by, by a lot of, you know, propaganda and all mm -hmm. those things. And we're trying to see and understand also, maybe we can also learn from them. There's something that we cannot perhaps even see because we are where we are, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a two-way thing. Uh, and even for DDS, as I monitor all, you know, the exchanges in uh, social media, I get to shake my head and say, how can, how can people, right? Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think there's something there that uh, we need to understand. At the same time, uh, there, there's a, it's incumbent on us also to let them know why we truly believe in what we believe. And that will not happen if we continue with this antagonistic mode of conversation. We just have to create that space, as I was saying, to be there. And that's a difficult space. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you. Uh, just reading some of the other comments. Uh, I echo some of these comments. I mean, thank you to the speakers. And I think this is very relevant. Thank you to the together and really um, building up, uh, building us all up, building up one another. Um, so great questions and inputs, BJ. <laughs> thank you, Villamore. Um, it's a very, I think it's a very interesting topic. Uh, and and I I'm really I'm sincerely curious because uh, I think it's it's our it's like our secret weapon you know as Filipinos I think um, we are um, it, it's in our culture it's in deeply ingrained in us um, you know I my my kids now are second generation Filipino uh, mm -hmm. Americans and uh, this is something that I would like to you know instill in my kids so. Mm -hmm. uh, Here's another one, I think it's a question. I'm just gonna read it. Despite all the injustices in the world, we have hope that we can move forward and transcend Kapwa to connect with Kapwa Tao and help humanity survive and thrive. Mm -hmm. God's love for all is reassuring us and we, that we are indeed loved. Thanks to Tess, Alma and Father Frank. Thanks to ASJ for these conversations. Yep, I definitely echo that from Estella. Uh, Sister Gina Rama. Would like to promote my book. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you can buy them at a, a Pauline's bookstore <laughs> uh, in the Philippines site uh, or Pauline's uh, online. Oh. Um, <laughs> thanks, Sister Gina. Uh, another comment from Glory Love your enemies, Jesus said. Then later he said, He also said, Love your neighbor as you love yourself. There's a need for dialogue to bring the enemy to the neighbor. Mm -hmm. Any comments uh father frank or tess or alma i i know in in you know all the, the what's fascinating is in the old testament you know the the message is um love love your neighbor right and then in the new testament love your enemies which is mm -hmm. step up uh gotta step up our game mm -hmm. which and which it, comes from from uh the concept also the principle that god loves us uh, mm -hmm. and we are forgiven right uh, it's difficult to forgive we know that uh, but there's a challenge also to be perfect as the father is uh, perfect right so it's a difficult challenge but uh, we, we make an effort nevertheless amen so uh, for, 
as we try to know what is right or wrong in regards to our Pakikipagkapwa. October 16, we will talk about media, how media can influence us in good or bad way. So it's an interesting point. I don't know if you want to add to that. Um, we, we will have to be there. Yeah. Yes. We'll have to be with media mm -hmm. so that we are able to influence them. Mm -hmm. That's true. Uh, seems ASJ and advocacy group, this is from Tim Gab Gabuna, seems ASJs and advocacy group, does it have a sort of welfare or livelihood program to assist those Kapwa Pinoy victims of social injustice? Mm, good question. I'd like to speak on, on behalf of ASJ. This is Donna. So we're very clear about our reason why we exist. It is a movement. It's a movement and we try to build alliance with other groups and other people who also believe in the fight for social justice. So we're very clear about that. We're not an organization. We don't represent uh, an ideology or anything like that. We are a movement so that we will raise awareness about the injustices that's going on, not just here in the United States, but all over the world. And so that's why we organize all these conversations and dialogues to continue discussing and reflecting on the issue and that in the process, we build alliances. So we build friendships just because we come together here. Because we realize we have a common vision, we have common principles, we have common values that are worth speaking about and sharing with other people. So we don't feel isolated. It's really a very uplifting, enriching experience to realize that, oh, we're not alone in this. There are so many people around the world who also believe in what we're doing and that we want to, to spread that kind of, uh, what do you call that? Uh, motivation and awareness and, and goal to fight for social justice. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well said. Uh, follow up to that, Donna. Uh, uh, that's really great, Ate Donna. Maraming salamat po. Uh, from Letty Tumbaga, can we join ASJ? Yes. Yeah, we, you are all invited to join. Uh, we have a Facebook, Facebook group, um, Athenians for Social Justice. Uh, just, you know, join. Uh, ask permission to join and then we will admit you in. Okay? We want as many allies as possible. You got it. No interviews needed, right? <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's invited, Letty, from Melanie. Uh, thanks, Donna. Good. Um, well, yeah. uh, I, I, I guess um, we have until 7.30, and I, I, I think we have... Uh, one more song to play and maybe I just want to say this real quick I you know I heard that the the crisis we are in you know the pandemic the divisions the social justice issues all the psychological trauma um, all these are uh, really a spiritual crisis I, you know I, I think it's a deep spiritual crisis um, so think so 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 I think you know uh, it takes it's really going to take our realization of that sense of our shared humanity to get us out of, out of this. And so I really appreciate, you know, you guys putting this together. Um, I, I feel like the spirituality is a big part of this and you guys are um, not turning your, your, not turning away from that, but including it in the conversation. 
Um, so, and is, is it okay? I mean, Donna, I think it's your turn. So yeah, before I uh, share the song that we will listen to and then Father Frank will do the closing prayer, uh, I'd like to make an announcement that our next Zoom event is going to be on October 16th. So that will be um, Jel Relos Santos, who will be our main speaker. And she, she will talk about um, the relevance of media and what's going on right now. So we, you are all invited. As usual, we would require you to register so that you will get the, the Zoom details like the password and the link. Uh, we're trying to install this kind of system because uh, we don't want Zoom bombers in the event. Okay, so pasensya lang. Have patience, we need to register so that you could join us in the next Zoom event, which is going to be in October 16, okay? So I'm gonna share my screen so that we can.
And so we would like to thank you, Lord, for this gathering of friends, gathering of community today. We ask you to remember us always as we always discern um, your mission for all of us, not only personally and individually, but how you are calling us as communities. Let us be your servants. Our psalm today, today is Saturday in the Philippines, tells us in every age, we believe, Lord, you are our refuge. You, give, you are our guide. You protect us. You keep us from harm. Prosper the work of our hands, Lord, because everything we offer back to you. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. St. Ignatius of Loyola, pray for pray us. For in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Bye, Vina. Bye, Jed. Bye, Glock.